if you have a recession and you print a ton of money and throw stimulus at it, you can get out of that recession quicker. But then you've done it at the cost of higher debt and then potentially for a, a more inflationary rebound in the future, which then you have to then raise rates super quickly and potentially put yourself into another recession. And so there are levers you can pull, but it's like every lever has like a cost associated with it. Hello there. Happy New Year. I hope you're all doing well. hope you all had a great New Year's Eve celebration and are ready for 2023. Okay, first confession, uh, Danny reminded me about eight times this week to do my intro and I totally forgot and I'm at the airport. I'm about to head out to Nashville and so I'm sat in my car recording this on the Voice Notes app on my phone. So if there's an issue with the sound quality, if it doesn't sound as good as normal, it's because I'm an idiot and so sorry, Danny. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and you're going to love this start to the year because I've got Lynn Alden back on the show, which is a great way to start the year. So I wanted to reflect on 2022 and look forward to 2023. And obviously, Lynn would be the best person for this. So yes, we recorded a smashing show. Just a note, though, a few of you have asked what's happened to the annual year roundup with Matt O'Dell. Well, listen, because I'm heading out to Nashville, I decided I'm going to record that show in person with, uh, with Matt. So... I think I'm recording that one tomorrow. So yeah, I'm going to record it with Matt. That's going to be out in a few days. We'll reflect on 2022 and look forward to 2023. Also, anyone out in Nashville, we're going to be hosting a meetup for the Rail Bedford game on Saturday. It's going to be a Bitcoin park. There's a meetup group for it. We'd love to see some of you. I've brought some shirts with me. If anyone wants to get some merch, come see me there. All right, onto the show. If you've got any questions about this, feel free to email me. You know the emails. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Did you have a good Christmas break? I did. What about you? Yes, I did. Yeah, had a great break. Uh, drunk too much, ate too much, uh, but had some lovely time with the family. So that was good. Uh, this is our final recording of the year. I know it's going out next year, but how, how's it been for you? Have you had a good year? Yeah, it's been a pretty good year. Obviously, it's been a challenging one from a market's perspective. Um, but from a business perspective, from, you know, uh, meeting people traveling around, I've certainly enjoyed the year. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, different parts of the world going through different things at the moment. But, you know, for me, I've been fortunate enough that it's, it's been a, you know, a, a pretty enjoyable year. And you've traveled quite a bit. You've got around, you've been to the conferences, you spent a lot of time with other people. It's great to see you've kind of blown up this year. You, you're probably too humble to admit it, but we recognize it. Well, I, you know, I think people... You know, I, I think last year was the one where I kind of had this big like uh, growth in terms of um, you know awareness, and that this is kind of like the continuation of that. Uh, that that's kind of how I view this year. And if anything, it's people. You know, I get questions like, you know, what are you trying to do to grow next year? I'm like, I'm not trying to grow next year. I want to consolidate. I want to you know focus on work life balance. I want to like streamline certain things. So it's it certainly you know cer- certain things over the past you know let's say 2020 2021 accelerated you know very quickly more than I would have thought. And so it's kind of been like keeping up and trying to manage that. There's a way of doing that quite easily. Just charge more because you don't charge enough. I've told you that again <laughs> and again. And I know you're going to say I'm not going to raise my prices, but you can just charge more. <laughs> I guess the, the the way that I approach is I want to you know keep it accessible to people as much as possible. So free content and then low cost content. All right, fair. You're a good person. Okay, so we wanted to do a little bit of a review of the year and then talk a little bit about next year, what we're thinking about. Um, But when me and Danny were planning this show, we felt like we needed just to ask you a little bit about what's been going on in Japan 
Obviously, the Bank of Japan allowed their 10-year bond rates to reach uh, 0.5% from 0.25%. And there was also talk about this on Twitter. Obviously, most of it I didn't really understand or why this was important. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, so I think first we have to go back to what they were doing before uh, this announcement. And so Japan's doing something called yield curve control. So normally, central banks control the short end. Uh, of interest rates, like the, you know, they'll determine overnight lending rates. Uh, but the the longer term bond markets, like you know, a ten year Treasury, a ten year gilt, a ten year JGB, you know, it, is supposedly set by the market, right? So the government's issuing debt to finance itself, and then the market is is pricing that. Uh, however, in very indebted uh, countries. Uh, as long as that debt is denominated in their own currency, which is the case for you know developed countries, that's kind of the, that's kind of the key differentiator between developed and and developing countries in a market sense. Um, as long as they're in that situation, they can override the long end of the curve too, not just the short end. It, it's considered more extreme policy. And you know a famous example that I like to point to is back in the 1940s during World War II, a number of countries did it, including the United States. So uh, in the United States, uh, you know we're fighting World War II. Uh, you know our fiscal deficits were absolutely massive. You know, a lot of people envision that's being spent overseas, but a lot of it's being spent domestically. You're building man- you're building manufacturing, you're you're hiring people, you're, you know, you're you're sourcing raw materials. And this is very inflationary, big expansion of the money supply. Uh, and so uh, the inflation in the US averaged six percent per year uh, that decade, you know, from the let's say the early 40s to the early 50s. Um, and uh, the highest inflation print was 19% uh, year over year. And they just held bonds, like the short end of the curve was held near zero, and then the long end of the curve was held at 2.5%. Uh, and so the entire treasury yield curve was submerged well below the inflation rate, no matter how high inflation got. And the way that they do that is the central bank says, we'll buy every bond that tries to go over this yield target, which is another way of saying, because you know when yields go up, it means bond prices go down. It's another way of saying that if bonds go below our price target, we will buy unlimited bonds to, to get them back above that target. And that also, what that does, that makes the the private market want to do it for you, because you know if if the if the Fed says, okay, we'll buy any bond that goes over 2.5 percent for more than a couple of days, uh, and let's see, during a, a middle of the day, you have a bond go up to 2.6 percent. Well, then maybe J.P. Morgan wants to come in, buy the bond, and then they can resell it to the government the next day at 2.5% and make a little gain, right? And so that's it's almost like it can hammer itself down because they know if it stays above that limit, the central bank will come in and just buy it back down to that limit. And so it's reliant on the credibility that the central bank's actually going to do what they say. Uh, they don't want to be left holding the bag if, if you know— you know, on a random Tuesday, the central bank says, actually, we're not going to do yield curve control anymore, right? Because then all the people that were holding bonds get screwed. So anyway, with Japan, because they're in a very high debt situation, right? So when you have super high debts, 100% of debt, uh, debt to GDP, 200%, that's just the, the government debt. In Japan, it's over 200%. Um, you know, if you do the calculations, if, I mean, if they had 3% interest rates, 4% interest rates, uh, how much of a percent of GDP would that be in interest every year? It'd be outrageous. And so they're kind of stuck in a similar environment where they're holding yields really low, and they were holding them before at 0.25%. So they were willing to buy any 10-year Japanese bond that tries to go over 0.25%. Uh, 
Um, and so essentially what happens is the, most of the market just sells the bonds uh, other than, you know, certain certain pools of capital in Japan kind of have to own bonds, you know, big insurance, uh, pension, things like that. But if you're not like a forced buyer, essentially, if you have alternatives, you get out of Japanese bonds and essentially the Bank of Japan ends up owning half of them and the market becomes very thin and, and rarely trades. Uh, and also it means that if the market is not allowed to express its view on, on inflation uh, and appropriate interest rates through the bond market, they will instead get out of the bonds and sell the currency, right? So it ends up being expressed on the currency instead. And so you had an usually uh, weak year for the yen because they were the one central bank that was really kind of doing hard yield curve control at super low rates while the rest of the world was trying to tighten. And what we saw in the past uh, week here was that the Bank of Japan adjusted their yield cap from 0.25% to 0.5% which doesn't sound like a lot. It's still below the inflation rate. It's still unusually low compared to what you can get in, in most other developed country bonds. Uh, but it is a big percent increase. Um, and it also, you know, it, it goes back to that point where you spook uh, the private market that's supposed to be doing the yield curve for you as much as possible. Because now, if a private entity comes in and says, well, I can just resell this to the Bank of Japan, you never know that, you know, Japan could come out and say, actually, it's 0.75% now. So right, so that it's it's kind of harder to maintain a second target, um, and so it's kind of a trade-off because one thing I actually argued earlier this year was that Japan set the peg too low, right? I mean, you could argue that they shouldn't have a peg, but realistically, when you have debt to the uh, debt to GDP that high, they're going to have a peg, um, and then the question is where do they set it? And I I think that they set it unusually low because it's you know it's it's very hard for them to maintain at that low and I think they're kind of adjusting back up to a more maintainable level but they have to reestablish re credibility because you know people can say well if they changed it once why can't they change it again right so if they if they're doing yield curve control that is to protect their own debts from seeing too high an interest but how are they therefore buying all of those bonds? to maintain that year curve control? Is that not just more debt? Uh, so they're creating new bank reserves to buy them. Uh, so debt is being issued as long as the Japanese government is running a significant deficit, which they are. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's where the debt creation is coming from. And then the money to buy uh, that debt is not, it's not creating debt, it's just creating new money, right? So the risk there is that it can be inflationary. Um, and so basically more of that debt is being converted from being held by the private sector to being held by the Bank of Japan. They're, they're printing money to buy them. So it's essentially debt monetization. Um, and you know the challenge in that environment is that basically they're saying outright that we need our bonds to lose purchasing power for the math to work. Right? So Japan has an official 2% uh, uh, inflation target. Inflation is currently above their target. And yet they're saying we're going to cap yields at 0.5%. And you know the short end of the curve is is at negative 0.1 percent, I believe. So it's 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 the last remaining negative nominal yield. So when you look at the whole Japanese yield curve, it's submerged below not only the current inflation rate but their target inflation rate. So if you add everything together, they're saying, wait a second, you're purposely you want bonds to lose value over time. And then yeah, the answer is yes, we do because you you can't have 200 percent debt to GDP and have positive real returns on your debt. Basically, those bondholders have to be the bag holders. Um, so you have to, you know, that, that's the situation we find ourselves. That's kind of peak fiat, you know, when you're, when you're this far into the system and all these debts have built up, that's kind of the release valve that you get to. But then who's going to buy these bonds? I know you say some people have to, cause they're mandated to, but outside of that, who would want to buy these bonds? 
very few people. That's there's there are days where the where Japanese ten year debt does not trade, which is remarkable. It, it, it's you know it, these markets are supposed to be very liquid. But in Japan's case, because it's been such a managed market for so long that the market has basically left. And so other than pools of capital that pretty much have to hold it um, and the Bank of Japan, there's really few buyers. Now, some people might go in for a trade if they think you know something might happen in the near term. But there's very few pools of capital that want to hold these things for long periods of time because you're being told up front, we're going to do everything in our power to make these lose value slowly, Right. And so most pools of capital do not want to hold them. And so the biggest buyer ends up being the Bank of Japan. Basically, the, the central bank owns the debt of the government uh, by, by creating new money to do so. So it's this, it's this big, like, recursive, you know, turtles all the way down fiat situation. Is there any way out of it for them? So the short answer is not really. If you go back to, if you go back to the 1940s, um, they were effective at flating the debt away, right? So they, you know, let's, let's say the United States, we got up to, you know, over 100% debt to GP. We did a decade of roughly of yield curve control. Um, inflated the, you know, basically nominal GDP grew much more quickly compared to the yields and the debt. And they're able to regain control of the situation and get the debt to GDP down. And, but that came from a number of factors. One, the debt was partially inflated away. That was a key variable. But then also, you know, they were able to shift from, you know, large fiscal deficits to austerity, right? And because a lot of the expenditure, obviously, in the 40s was was temporary and, you know, could be ended as you got into the 50s. Um, and so the United States, it's not that they started running surpluses and paying down the debt, but what they essentially st- started doing is stop running deficits, at least. So for several years, they kind of held nominal debt flat while nominal GDP kept growing. And the combination of those bonds losing some of their purchasing power uh, and you know getting control of that deficit situation and, and having growth come back was able to get them out of that trap. But that was kind of the best case scenario. If you, if you looked at bonds for other countries, throughout the world from the 40s, you know, the United States was the one that was, you know, virtually untouched by the war. Um, and so they came out strong. Their bond market lost less of its value than the rest of the world. The numbers were far worse in Europe. Uh, Japan basically hyperinflated. Uh, if you're on the if you're on the losing side or the less winning side of that whole global conflict. And the difference now is that in the in the 2020s, a lot of these are structural. A lot of them are aging demographics, built-in uh, entitlement systems, uh, promises made, you know, one, two, three, four decades ago, if not more, adjusted along the way. Um, and so, you know, there's really few ways out other than trying to have it be a slow bleed rather than like a rapid uh, all of a sudden, right? So they want essentially, if you if you you know if you got like a central banker. Uh, drunk, and then you got them to be fully honest with you off the record and say, "What do you actually want to do?" They're set, they essentially say, "We want you know yields below inflation, you know, for like a decade, and hopefully not you know double digit inflation, right?" So they it's like they want that kind of like sweet spot. They want to be able to maintain that, but of course that's that's challenging to do. Gosh, is any is is there anything here that's re- repeating now? You said that the. Uh, U.S. bonds were largely untouched now, with U.S. interest rates quite high. Is are the U.S. bonds seen as like a safe haven right now? Uh, in a way, um, but if you look at so it's funny because a lot of people when they think the dollar is strong, it must mean that a lot of foreign investors are piling into treasuries. But usually, you actually get the opposite. When the dollar is strong, usually f- uh, fewer foreigners are buying treasuries, and it's because there's kind of these uh, mechanistic forces there where. 
you know, the world has $13 trillion in, in dollar-dominated debt. And when the dollar's strengthening, it essentially means that their their liabilities are hardening, right? So, for example, if I if I took out a mortgage, uh, but instead of being dollars, it was priced in Swiss francs, and Sw- and the Swiss franc like appreciated compared to the dollar, compared to like my dollar-based income, uh, that would have been a bad trade on my part, right? My my liabilities are like hardening compared to my assets, compared to my income, and that's essentially what happens in in a lot of countries around the world when the dollar strengthens relative to their uh, local currency. So compared to their cash flows, compared to their asset prices, their debts are hardening. And so what what a lot of times happening is there's a dollar shortage in those countries. So they go to their central bank and say, look, we got we got to have dollars to service these debts. Our uh, our you know quarter after quarter, some of some of these come due. We have to pay interest on it. We need some dollars. So the central bank says sure, and then they sell some of their treasuries. And then they loan out dollars uh, to their, you know, their local banking system that can then loan it out to their non-bank corporations and so forth. Um, and so usually, if you have a sharp rise in the dollar, you get a reduction. Uh, it's flat to down in foreign treasury holdings. And so this has kind of been a year where there are some private foreign pools of capital that have been viewing the treasury as a safe haven and kind of going into it. But that's been offset by the fact that official sources like central banks uh, have generally been trimming their their treasury holdings for a number of reasons, in, in part because of that strong dollar environment. So where is safe to put money right now then? <laughs> That's the that's the challenging yeah. thing of an inflationary environment. The, the, the answer is not that many places. So one of the best performing this year was ironically cash. So inflationary environment, it's ironic to buy cash. Um, if you look in the U.S. Uh, system, if you hold if you hold dollars in a bank account, you're getting paid near zero most likely. Uh, but if you're holding short-duration treasuries or money markets, you're at least getting several percentage points to offset some of that inflation. Um, so cash is kind of like a safe haven to lose value slowly. Um, another thing that's that's actually gone up this year is uh, a number of decent dividend-paying value stocks, right? That went into the year pretty cheap, and that you know have generally continued doing pretty good cash flows and paying pretty high dividends. A lot of those have actually been some of the best places you could be. Right, so you did better than cash. You did better than gold. Uh, you did better than most risk assets that went down. Uh, and so those have those have been some of the best place to be. And of course, there's some specific sectors like energy stocks and things like that that at varying points of the year did very well. Uh, but a general rule was cheap, profitable companies that pay dividends has generally been the best bet this year. Um, we also have, I mean, housing is coming down for, for obvious reasons, but it's still up year over year. Uh, and so, especially in linear markets, if someone bought like a reasonably priced house, uh, you know, earlier this year with a low fixed rate mortgage before mortgage rates shot up, they're generally still doing pretty good with that trade or, you know, that that investment, however they want to view it. So, there, there have been a number of ways to either gain a little bit of value or at least lose value less quickly than other places. Uh, but kind of one of the remarkable things to this year is that almost everything got hit. So bonds, one of the worst years ever. Uh, stocks, pretty bad year. Um, uh, gold, you know, was like flat. You know, at one point it was up, then it was down. Now it's kind of flat for the year. Um, uh, and, you know, obviously Bitcoin had a bad year. Growth, growth stocks had a horrible year. Um, a lot of those look like shit coins, basically. Uh, like these unprofitable, super high, super high valuation companies just got killed, um, and so there, there's been a couple ways to, you know, if you were like a fully long energy or something like that, you made a lot of money. But out, outside of being very specific, uh, it was a pretty hard year to to make money on. So it's more about damage control. 
so everything I'd read with regards to Chinese debt, and we've discussed this before, it seems like it's high risk. But I've also read recently with those, oh no, we spoke to Doomberg yesterday, and he said with the kind of 180 that China's done on COVID, might see them kind of kind of roar out and actually perform well. So I think there's a chance for that because I mean their their equity prices are super cheap because you know it's kind of like nobody really trusts them anymore because you know Chinese policymakers can change their view at any time. You face delisting risk in much much of the world. Um, you know if they were to invade Taiwan or something like that. I mean a lot of those could be zeroed out for foreign investors in a similar way that any any holders of Russian stocks. Uh, you know you might have been holding a cheap high high quality company but if you if you held it when you know Russia went into Ukraine you just you just got zeroed out even if the company's still profitable uh, and so there's there's all these risks around Chinese equities in that sense the the challenge with China has always been in their real estate market um, that's where they, you know, uh, culturally they want to store a lot of value, uh, very high population country. And then you have basically very, very high valuations on the real estate and then a lot of debt attached to it. And then that actually also bleeds out to the rest of the world. So that, that, that contributes to why Australia like has such high property prices that contributes to why, uh, Canada has such high property prices. It kind of pushes out a lot of these Chinese buyers are saying, well, you know, Chinese real estate's ridiculously priced. So we'll go buy in these, in these, you know, potentially safer jurisdictions. It's expensive, but it's it's not any more expensive than China. And so they they go out there and it pushes those valuations up. And the risk there, so one, on one hand, China's deliberately trying to deflate their real estate bubble, right? I mean, their president came out and said, you know, real estate is for like living in, not speculating on. So the idea of like a, a Chinese person having like say five apartments, a lot of them are empty and they're just kind of hoping for appreciation. They're trying to pull that kind of strategy in. Um, but that, of course, comes with all sorts of downsides. That's basically slower construction activity, slower economic activity. People are not happy uh, with their you know, their real estate holdings going down in price. And so you have kind of a slow controlled demolition that's happening there that they can only maintain for so long, in my view. And so I do think that the reopening is kind of part of their realization that they're, they're kind of pushing things pretty tight here. Uh, in terms of both the um, you know the debt load as well as public sentiment, so I, I'm somewhat less bearish on China than the average person, you know, over over kind of an intermediate term, because I do think that reopening could be pretty effective for them in that sense. Um, I think the longer term risks for China are the one they have pretty bad demographics. Um, you know, they, they basically like uh, you know they're one of the more top heavy populations. When you look out over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and so that's going to be a challenge for them. And number two is that their geography has always just been challenging compared to, say, the United States, uh, basically, you know, compared to some of these other places that they, they have certain limits to their geography uh, that, that, you know, they've kind of been struggling with for a while. Um, and so I'm, you know, an, an Asian financial crisis is not my base case, but it is something you have to keep watching because with China, you never really know fully what the data is like, right? They, they selectively release data under, under you know, President Xi, they've, they've reduced their transparency, right? So for a number of decades, you had rising transparency, uh, rising, you know, at least somewhat market-oriented economy. And under, the, under President Xi, you've kind of reversed a lot of that. Uh, and so under that framework, it's hard to know for sure what you're looking at. You pretty much had to disregard things like COVID statistics. You had to disregard certain uh, growth metrics, um, but there are, there are still some out there. But you have to kind of take them with a grain of salt. So I, I'm, you know, 
less bearish on China than the average bearer, let's say. And we also have to look at how that's going to impact the global economy, because one of the things holding energy down was Chinese lockdowns, that they were consuming less energy than they otherwise would or could have, right? So yeah, if you look at uh, Chinese jet flights way down, um, you know, construction activity down, uh, and to the extent that 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 you know either goes back up to 2019 levels or exceeds them, that's that's a you know that's a that's something coming back to the market and saying we're going to take an extra million barrels a day, a million two bar- two million barrels a day of oil, whatever the numbers end up being, and that that can put pressure on a tight energy market globally. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. What about supply chains? I know before you've uh, tracked like historical prices for containers uh, and uh, the the kind of like the shipping costs around the world. And we saw that. I think you and I discussed that when um, during the COVID lockdowns, there was a massive increase in in costs. Is there anything that you're seeing that's going to reduce the cost pressures of, you know, people who may be in places like the UK or the US who are importing goods? Is there anything you'll see in there? 
Well, there has been a significant disinflation this year of a lot of those shipping prices, and a lot of it was demand um, curtailment, right? So as prices got very high and as you started to get stimulus being cut off and as you started to get tighter monetary conditions, it kind of put you know pressure on the buyers, and that allowed those markets to, to somewhat more normalize. Um, the, the concern I have is that I think that a lot of people are kind of looking, it's kind of like a false sense of security, right? So some of those extreme moves we're always going to come off, right? Those extreme levels don't just stay there. Eventually they do, you know, high prices are the cure for high prices is, is the old saying. Uh, and so that's played out. I think the longer term thing is the fact that, you know, we had multiple decades of globalization. So basically you had you had a pool of capital and then you had a number of pools of, of labor, let's say China, former, former Soviet states, that kind of thing. And the last, you know, uh, three to four decades were basically about tying those two things together, saying, okay, we have capital, you have labor, let's, you know, let's build factories there, let's, you know, build XYZ there and then ship it, let's build infrastructure. And now in a less trustworthy world, in a more multipolar world, we're seeing kind of a you know, either a reversal of that trend or at least like a slowdown and a stoppage of that trend. And that means that more of the cost pressures get pushed back on their on their own markets. Um, and so I, I think we're in kind of a more structurally, you know, problematic environment for supply chains where for decades you could ignore resiliency and focus on efficiency because the world was just always getting more and more unified and safer. And now when you can't rely on that fact, when you have to assume what if what if XYZ happens? What if this country invades that? What if what if you know the uh, relations between these two countries break down? What happens to my supply chain? Um, you have to bake in more resiliency and that that comes at a cost. Um, and so I think that the longer term story is that you know we're probably in a more um, uh, a somewhat more inflationary environment in that regard, but the the extreme edges are taken off because there's not that huge burst. Uh, another thing about COVID is that it you know in addition to the stimulus and things like that, it also rapidly changed people's behavior in a short period of time, which supply chains are not not good at dealing with. So like for for a while, everybody stopped flying and instead they started buying electronics and remodeling their home. Right, and so that that kind of activity just rapidly changes what people need, uh, and that puts a lot of pressure on those on those areas. Um, and then there's kind of been a kickback where they say, okay, now we bought, now we remodeled our home. We're not going to remodel our home for five years. We want to go on a lot of flights now, right? And so you have almost like a a pullback, and so you have disinflation in some of those goods that were that were inflated to begin with, and now you have, you know plenty of activity and in, in flying and hotels and things like that. And so I think that as that normalizes, we kind of come back down, but these longer term trends are probably still here. Well, we've seen that with our travel, right, Danny? I mean, when when COVID kind of ended and we first started traveling, we were able to get flights ridiculously cheap. Like Danny was flying business from Australia <laughs> because it was so damn cheap. And uh, over the last, I would say, what, 12 months, Danny, would you say they've doubled in price? At least doubled. I think. I think my last flight to the US was double what a business flight used to cost. Yes, yeah, you know, like our, tra our travel costs have essentially doubled in the space of a year. Uh, also, yeah. we've noticed like our Airbnb costs because we, you, you know, how all our setup is. The Airbnb costs have gone up massively. There's a place we rented previously where they essentially doubled the price, and I can't tell that is if that's. It feels a bit like what you said that that the supply dropped and now there's a massive increase in demand but the supply hasn't come back yeah so part i mean for flights for example uh the supply is not fully back um and it also just ties into the whole rotation i just discussed where you know around the margins if more people want to do one thing at the same time 
um, let's say, buy goods or refurbish their home, that's going to put a lot of pressure there. And everyone says, okay, we did that the last few years. Now we're all going to travel. We're all going to, you know, do things we couldn't do for the past few years uh, and, and start ramping up in that regard. You know, there's less international restrictions on travel, which 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 persisted, you know, pretty long in many cases. I mean, you know, back in, in earlier this year, there are still tons of restrictions that have kind of eased throughout this year. And so as those have eased, um, basically there's just more and more people that are flooding into travel and things like that, while supply, at least for flights and things like that, is still not fully ramped up. And so I, I think we're going to see a, probably a similar phenomenon where when we look back, let's say a year from now, two years from now, it's hard to say exactly how long it goes, but I think some of these extreme prices will will cool off to some extent because you either get supply coming back online or those high prices will then deter some people that said okay we got some travel out of our system this is getting really expensive let's 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 stay home this year um and then the, the market can normalize mm. but then i think you know longer term the, the question becomes energy security uh and and gradual deglobalization Th those are i think the longer term inflationary drivers where some of these were shorter term so do you, do you think these are actual trends that are coming, this kind of deglobalization? I think of rate of change terms, yes. Um, yeah. So when, when people hear deglobalization, I mean, it depends on what you mean by that, because it could mean that, you know, in the extreme sense, like let's say U.S. and China don't trade anymore. Is that going to come anytime soon? No. Um, but I, I think it, it essentially means that you've tapped out a lot of the, the, the you know, the kind of the easy uh, adjustments, right? Or you, we've already picked the low-hanging fruit of globalization, which was essentially, you know, it, going into the 80s, let's say, you know, China was very impoverished um, and opened up to the world. And, and so that was like, okay, here's, you know, hundreds of millions of, of workers. Um, and then there's large pools of capital that said, okay, let's let's join that. And then you had the fall of the Soviet Union in the, in the early 90s. So you had a number of, of states there able to open up. And so you had this, this like, basically this huge environment that was just, it was just right, it was just ready to come together. And I think a lot of that's already been done. And then now we see, you know, Russia separating, China kind of closing off, uh, more tensions, um, more kind of tail risks being realized. You know, it's like, what if, again, like what if China does do something with Taiwan? What does that mean for all the U.S. companies uh, and infrastructure there? Um, does that mean that the U.S. freezes Chinese assets, right? So that do they want to hold their assets uh, in the United States the way that they used to. Um, you know, you also have, for example, all the way back in 2013, China announced when they announced their Belt and Road Initiative, they announced that it's no longer in their best interest to keep accumulating treasuries. So it's not like it's not like on day one they just sold all their treasuries, but that what they essentially did was they hit a high watermark for how many treasuries they want to hold, and then they're just like flat to down, even though they're still running giant trade surpluses in dollars, and they're just funneling those dollars to other things, which essentially loans to African countries, South American countries, all, you know, South, Southeast Asian countries, all sorts of um, different uh, projects. And so I, I do think we see a more multipolar world uh, and that the low-hanging fruit of globalization is behind us, but it doesn't mean that we backtrack on all of our gains right away. It just means, especially for uh, national security uh, industries, like let's say semiconductors, uh, certain energy things, there's there's kind of a realignment and, and kind of a renewed interest in resiliency and, and kind of backups. Yeah, you've said to me a few times that you think the 20s is really going to be a, a decade where the story is inflation. Um, are you still, do you still feel this? Do you feel like inflation, the inflationary pressure is going to drop? Like, how are you reading it right now? 
So I view this as in a disinflationary cycle within what will probably be an inflationary decade. Uh, and that's something that I've been estimating for a while. If anything, it actually came a quarter later than I thought. So if you look at my writings uh, before, I thought that the, the peak in inflation would come in probably like quarter two of this year. And it kind of dragged on to like quarter three, uh, it, I think in large part because of, of Russia. Um, and so they, they just kind of added fuel to a fire that was already there and extended it a little bit. Uh, but essentially, you have you know a lot of that stimulus money is wearing off. Um, a lot of that demand destruction, uh, or at least demand slowdown takes place. And so now we're in kind of this period where central banks are fighting back, uh, fiscal authorities are trying to fight back, trying to gain control of that inflation. And it's working better in some markets than others. And so my overall expectation is that we're in a disinflationary environment. Um, but when we look out at, say, 2024, 2025, I think that's where we risk having another inflationary spike because the energy situation is still not fundamentally resolved. Basically, by releasing U.S. oil, by uh, China being shut down partially for for a while, uh, there's been ways to kind of keep oil from from skyrocketing. Um, but if you want to have another cycle of growth ahead, um, let's say you know after we get through 2023, if you go into 2024, you want another cycle of growth. Well, we haven't seen a lot of new energy supply come online, and so that's kind of ready to be a problem all over again. Are you saying anything with regards to investment in new energy supplies? So around the margins, there's some. Uh, you always, you know, basically like, uh, you know, uh, U.S. shale oil. Uh, there's actually a recent survey uh, uh, that they do them quarterly uh, in, throughout Texas, for example, to see what what the plans are of energy capex. And there's really nothing remarkable, right? I mean, basically, everyone's saying, okay, inflation's transitory. Uh, you know, we're not going to chase this. We're not going to, you know, you know. Uh, radically increase our our energy production, and then you know you have policies like windfall taxes in parts of the world and things like that, where they say, well, I mean, if we if we don't even have good clarity on what percentage of our profits we get to keep from this, maybe we should just hold off for now and not invest. Um, and so I think you know partially um, private sector decisions and then partially uh, you know uh, public policy implications contribute to pretty low. Um, you know, uh, uh, new investment. So it's it, it certainly uh, lo- looks like it's going to be higher than this year, but not way higher. And that's compounded by the fact that a big percentage of that amount that's going to be higher is inflation. So the actual, you know, when you when you factor out and say, okay, how many actual barrels are we going to get online, you know, to offset our declining existing wells? I think the answer is not much. I mean, we we've already seen kind of a flat line in U.S. shale rebounding, so we still have not hit our high water mark in terms of U.S. Uh, oil output. Uh, you know, kind of the pre-COVID level. Um, I think there's a good chance we will eventually get to that level. But you know the the initial several months of say 2021 and things like that. You know, we were rapidly going back up in terms of oil production and now we're kind of like rolling over and flatlining because the you know the marginal barrel is, is always that much harder and you know for example analyst Luke Groman would describe it as peak cheap oil which is that there are plenty of oil oil and gas sources still out there throughout the world um, but that we already have a lot of the low hanging fruit and so we're turning towards things like you know shale that for example rapidly depletes you have to keep heavily investing in it in order to just maintain the output, let alone grow the output. And then you have other unconventional oil sources that, that on average, can be somewhat more expensive. Um, and then you have, you know, some of the cheapest sources of oil, like like uh, you know, a lot of the Middle Eastern oil, for example, that's not really growing anymore. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of the tricky environment that you need quite a lot of capex in order to get an amount of oil that is that is not much higher. 
Yeah, when we spoke with Doomberg yesterday, uh, he pretty much said that uh, any rational energy policy needs to have a nuclear central to it. And the main issue with that is it takes so much time for these projects to you know, c- come online. Um, are, you, are, are we seeing anything changing in that? I think we've we've seen changes in the narrative, right? So so the, we've seen a rapid shift in the desires to shut down existing yeah. plants. Uh, that's been pretty quick. Um, Japan's also accelerated their opening, their reopening of some of their reactors that they've closed uh, since Fukushima. Uh, and so around the margins, you have seen that. We also, I mean, uh, you know, China's building nuclear reactors, uh, India's building nuclear reactors, some Middle Eastern countries are building nuclear reactors. Um, and so, but as you point out, those take quite a while. Now, I mean, the funny thing is you look back in the 70s, I mean, those were built pretty quickly. Um, you know, a, part of why they take a long time now is is regulations and things like that. Obviously, you know, you want you don't want like a Chernobyl 2.0. You know, part of why that was so bad is because it didn't even have the dome, you know, the the, the concealment dome around it. And so obviously you don't want like, you know, unscrupulous like nuclear builders. Um, but we've kind of hit this point where it's like choked off by it's almost impossible. Like in the United States, it's almost impossible to build a new, new nuclear reactor. Uh, it's just like it's just not a business you want to get into. Um, and so part of that's kind of our own doing that it takes so long. It doesn't fundamentally take that long. It, it takes longer than a coal plant, but it's not like there's, there's no law that like of nature that says a nuclear plant has to take like six, seven years to build. Um, and so that's, it's, it's partially our own doing and just kind of, um, the state of, you know, kind of the global construction industry, especially in developed markets, things take longer. Uh, you know, it takes us longer to build a skyscraper now than it did the Empire State Building in the 1930s. Um, that's kind of where yeah. we're at. Or was it like, uh, do you remember that that came out about uh, sometime last year, where it was uh, like an escalator in a New York subway cost like 27 million to build? You could probably find that, Danny, some ridiculous uh, project. And I'm sure it was like, I'm sure it was like a New York escalator that took um, that took like three years and. It might even be more than 27 million. I'll leave Danny to find that. Um, there's been a lot of talk of uh, recessionary pressures and that maybe we're entering a recession. Um, I've got anecdotal evidence from friends who run their businesses who were talking about that things feeling like they're slowing up. What do you see your side on that? So I think it's been somewhat surprising how resilient so far the economy has been to recession, but I still think the picture does not look very good for 2023. Um, it, it depends on a few different variables. So right now, for example, the U.S. yield curve is inverted, which means that the 10-year treasury is a lower yield than the three-month treasury. Uh, the last eight recessions, you know, the yield curve inverted before the recession, uh, and there's been no false signals, right? So it's never inverted, and then there's no recession. Now, the, the, the caveat, though, is that sometimes it's like, you know, a recession happens two months later, and sometimes it happens like two years later. So there's a pretty wide gap for how long it can take for a recession to materialize, uh, number one. Um, and another challenge is that monetary policy happens on a lag because especially in the United States and in a number of other countries, a lot of the debt is fixed rate. Um, and so you know, just because mortgage rates, for example, shot up dramatically does not mean that the average American homeowner is paying a higher mortgage rate. You know, basically means that fewer mortgages get taken out at those higher rates. Fewer people ever want to leave or sell their current home. They want to lock in and keep their current mortgage rate. Um, and so, basically, a lot of those are unaffected by the increase in rates. And so, what happens is quarter after quarter, uh, potentially year after year, as rates are at a higher level, 
some percentage of debt matures and gets rolled over. Like some corporate debt matures and gets you know refinanced at these higher rates. Uh, some people just have to move. Uh, things happen, and then you know so low low interest rate debt gets refinanced at higher rates, and that eats into incomes. It eats into things that they otherwise could spend money on. Uh, you know, more of it goes to bondholders, banks, things like that, and away from the the non-financial industry, and that can contribute to recessionary conditions. Um, especially because if you look at you know office like uh, commercial properties, you know they've never recovered yet from the combination of COVID and remote work. Right, so it's not that you know remote work was always going to happen to some degree. And what what you know COVID did was say, okay, we're going to take the next five years of remote work and push it into three months. Um, that that kind of trend was rapidly accelerated, and so even even as it bounces back somewhat, you know a lot of companies have already decided that they need less office space than they used to, and so there's higher. Um, uh, you know, uh, vacancy rates, for example, in New York office real estate. Um, I'm sure many other uh, uh, cities as well, uh, including you know cities throughout Europe, cities in other countries. And so over time, as as those holders of those properties have to refinance their debt at higher rates, that just puts pressure uh, on them. And so I think that it's one of those things where we're kind of in a more stag, like a stagnant environment right now, and we'll see if it descends into an outright recession. Um, so right now, U.S. unemployment, for example, looks like it's bottoming and maybe turning up a little bit. Um, you see uh, consumer confidence, CEO confidence, measures like that are very low. Um, the one saving grace that is somewhat, I think, keeping things afloat is that if you look at this year, the dollar index was soaring, which, again, to my prior point earlier in this discussion, puts a lot of pressure on the entire world. Uh, but in in the second half of the year, um, you've had like a rollover in the dollar index. It, it's kind of left off some pressure, and so that that's been a a constructive environment for a lot of developing countries, um, a lot of uh, just indebted entities around the world, and it's given them a little bit of like a a, a breath of life. Um, and combined with the China's reopening, that's kind of the one variable to keep watching to say, okay, you know, the the, the U.S. is kind of in some ways, purposely putting itself into a recession to try to regain control of inflation. But then the question is, as the market, you know, looks at their inverted yield curve and maybe stops, uh, you know, paying more for the dollar, it allows these other indebted entities around the world to potentially stabilize and start doing okay. Um, so I'm, I'm perhaps less bearish on the rest of the world than the average person is, but I still think that 2023 uh, does have a lot of risks for recession or near recession, just overall kind of weak economic growth. This show is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry, and Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. 
www.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is shop.ledger.com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. .io. One thing that um, I heard, when when, pe- when the interest rates first started um, going up, when that was first announced, a lot of the more like Austrian economists were kind of making out that the economy wouldn't survive any sustained period of high interest rate. Um, but it seems to kind of be doing fine. Um, what is it you think they got wrong with that? I think partially right, partially wrong. So, for example, even myself, like if you said, you know, how high do you think the Feds can be able to tighten interest rates before they start causing problems? My number was probably around 3%, but they've already been able to get up to, to 4%. Um, I think part of it was how quickly they did it, because as I mentioned before, all, a lot of this operates on a lag. So it's almost like there's very little difference. If you go to like 0% to 3%, you know, like in a, in one year or 0% to 5% in one year, that almost doesn't make a difference because, act, you know, refinancing activity came to a halt pretty much. Um and so it's almost like that that extra number barely matters in the near term. Where it starts to matter is quarter after quarter as this plays out. Um, that's where I think uh, it starts causing issues. So I think it's I think it's a matter of time rather than just height in terms of interest rates. Um, there's also it's always hard to measure how much kind of excess liquidity is still in the system, right? So people got stimulus checks, they got childcare tax credits, um, PPP loans that turned into grants. You know, so basically millionaires were given you know, another like half a million, uh, things like that. And that's just money that's kind of like sitting there and they, you know, they kind of like drain that out over time. It starts to getting diffused throughout the economy. And so some people had higher savings rates or, you know, higher savings stashes stored away than I think some analysts realized. And so 
you know, I think quarter after quarter, it gets harder. Uh, the comparisons get harder from prior quarters um, as some of the conditions, you know, basically as as conditions stay very tight. Um, so I think I think that's probably one way to look at it that, you know, these things take time. And then also the way I was phrasing it was the Fed can tighten, but they can't normalize which is that you know a lot of people are like oh there's too much debt the fed can never raise rates and it's like well of course they can in the short term right i mean if, if you look at for example us debt the average maturity is something like 5 years um, now it's it's somewhat front loaded because you have 30 year debt on one hand and then you have you know trillions and trillions of dollars in, in t bills which is you know that that all refinances within within say a 2 year period um, and so you know, if they raise rates to 5% overnight, it doesn't mean that all U.S. debt is now 5% higher. It basically means that, you know, starting with those T-bills, some of the existing short-term debt starts getting refinanced at higher rates, and then it, it turns into the one-year treasuries and then the two-year treasuries, and it's basically more of that maturing debt gets refinanced at higher and higher rates. And so there's a very big difference between, say, holding rates at 5% for five years versus doing it for one year, because more and more of that debt gets refinanced at that higher rate. And so the way I would phrase it is that the Federal Reserve is unlikely to get back to a period of, of positive real rates and then maintain it for years. Um, but they can get to either positive rates in the near term, or they can get up to higher rates while inflation is still high. So, for example, what's remarkable is that as much as the Fed has tightened, they're still below the official inflation rate year over year. Um, and so they're still in, in negative real territory. Now, they are higher than inflation break-evens, which is you know, supposedly the market's um, estimate of forward inflation. So they're positive in that sense. But they're still below trailing year over year inflation. So they've tightened, um, but it's not like they've done like a Volcker 1970s thing yet. Um, right. that, that's kind of how I'd phrase some of those aspects. And so the, the tightening was meant to carry on until 2024, I think is what the Fed said. Do you think they'll last that long? So I think that they might maintain levels that long. I mean, the market and even the Fed's already kind of pointing to early 2023 is when they're probably going to start topping out in terms of their rates. Um, and then the question is how long can they hold it? And then that will largely depend on whether or not a recession materializes or not. I mean, if a recession starts to materialize, they're going to get a lot of pressure to pull back. Um, if a recession manages to be narrowly avoided, let's say China reopens hard enough and, and the weaker dollar around, you know, uh, gives enough countries around the world a boost to kind of, you know, hold up the equilibrium and we kind of narrowly avoid a recession, then you can stay tighter for longer. Um, there's also, you know, if inflation returns, uh, and the Fed is still holding rates, you know, within say 100 basis points of where they are, um, you can have an environment where they're actually not that tight on a real basis. Um, and so I think that the the question becomes, what are they going to do with quantitative tightening? So you could potentially hold rates where they are, but then stop selling bonds, for example. That's that's a way of slowing down your tightening while still trying to be somewhat tight. Um, so I, I think there's like kind of a a range of options that they can do. It's still not fully clear how that's going to play out. I think that eventually they're going to run into problems with the treasury market where you know you, you can't have a strong dollar and the Fed continue to sell bonds. So far in the second half of the year, because the dollar weakened um, and because they drained the treasury general account a little bit, they've been able to keep selling bonds. 
But if you don't have those variables, let's say in the first half of 2023, then I think the Fed's quantitative tightening gets pretty challenging for them to maintain. So overall, I think that they're going to maintain some degree of tightness throughout 2023, but exactly how tight will partially depend on what happens with uh, recessionary conditions, while also keeping in mind that it's not as tight as you'd expect, given how high inflation is relative to some of those rates. If we do enter a recession, Lynn, what, what are the signals you're looking at for that? And how, what are the kind of what, what would the impact be? What are the things that people should be aware of? Like, what do we think that uh, the impact would be on equities? What would the impact be on Bitcoin? Like, what, what are the, the historical things that have happened during a recession? So one thing I'm looking at is purchasing managers index, um, both the US one specifically, and then also other countries. Uh, because that kind of gives you a good sine wave of is the is the economy expanding or is it contraction, uh, especially the manufacturing uh, side of the economy. So services tend to be more recession resistant, right? So you know hospital workers don't don't generally get fired in a recession, you know, for example. Whereas say manufacturers often do. You often have that more cyclical type of uh, slowdown. So one is I'm looking at those more cyclical aspects of the economy. Uh, I also then look at things like freight index, like how much how much stuff's being transported around, because that, that impacts how many drivers you need, that impacts you know warehouse usage, all sorts of things like that. So I look at that, that kind of chain of behavior there. Uh, I also look at unemployment. So historically in the US, if unemployment rises by 50 basis points, meaning 0.5%, like if you go from 4% unemployment to 4.5% unemployment, if you get that much, it never stops there. It just keeps going up for a period of time. And then you, you kind of get this like spiral into recession. Uh, now, maybe, you know, they're kind of expecting this time is going to be different. If you look at the Fed models, they're expecting higher unemployment, but not way higher employment. Um, historically, that's been a you know, something that doesn't really happen very often. Um, another thing I look at is that because this recession has impacted higher wage workers more, actually. So it, so there's been a shortage in things like, say, food workers. And a lot of people losing their jobs are like tech workers, Silicon Valley workers. Um, a lot of the, a lot of those people have severance packages. And so they don't go and apply for unemployment right away. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily show up in the, say, uh, initial unemployment claims data as quickly as it would if people in the working class or, the, the say, the, the lower half, the middle income uh, class gets gets laid off. And so I think that that can slow, like, uh, slow down how that shows up in the data. And so, but I'm looking forward now to 2023 to see if we start to get more unemployment rate ticking up. Um, and so that's what I would look at the combination of, of PMIs, unemployment, um, and things like that, as well as, you know, the Atlanta Fed does a pretty good real-time estimator for what the quarterly GDP is going to be like. Um, so we, like, in this quarter, they've been tracking what they think is going to be by the end of the quarter, which of course isn't reported till the next quarter. Uh, all throughout next quarter, they'll be tracking it, which again, we won't find out till quarter two what you know, quarter one's GDP was. So I look at that as a somewhat real-time estimate for at least the direction of where things are headed as this kind of plays out. And would you say like the global markets are so intertwined right now that if we have a recession, it's a global recession? Partially, yes. Um, but uh, maybe less than other people put it because if the U.S. has a recession, uh, the Fed gets less hawkish, which likely takes some pressure off the dollar which then gives the rest of the world a little bit of a reprieve. So you kind of have these like cascading things that, you know, they, it all impacts them at once, but then one of the impacts starts undoing one of the other impacts. 
Uh, and so that that's one way to look at it. And then I realized your, your prior question I didn't fully answer was what happens to different assets in a recession? What happens yeah. to equities? What happens to things like that? So one thing I'll point out is that 2022 was mostly about valuation compression. So as the dollar was hardened, essentially, so higher, higher rates, um, higher dollar index, that put a lot of valuation pressure on a lot of companies. So, you know, it's not that companies' earnings fell apart. It's that, you know, instead of paying 25 times earnings for a stock, people said, let me, let me pay 18 times earnings for that same stock. Uh, so you had a, 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 you know, basically a reset in a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, medium growth companies. So not hyper growth, but not value kind of like these like middle of the road companies, like profitable growth, for example, then you had unprofitable growth that got absolutely crushed. And a lot of this is because, you know, if, if, if the 10 year treasury pays you 1% a year, um, and you want to then go into equities instead, you say, okay, what is the target rate of return I want on equities? And you might say, I want 5% better than treasuries, so I want at least a 6% return. Um, and so you pay a pretty high multiple for those equities because you're, you're comparing it to what is essentially a very overvalued treasury. On the other hand, if the treasury is yielding 4% and you still want a 6% uh, equity risk premium, well, then you want a 10% return on your equities. And so you're going to pay a lower multiple for the same equities. You want basically a higher huh. dividend yield, a higher earnings yield, different ways to measure it. And so as you've gotten higher long duration bond rates, that puts downward pressure on a lot of equity valuations, especially growth oriented equities more so than value oriented equities. Um, so that's been a big story this year. It also, you know, a, a stronger dollar puts some pressure on gold, um, uh, kind of countering some of the other things that should be beneficial for gold. And then also, as you've seen, you know, the, the whole crypto industry was just heavily intertwined and indebted. So that that's the speculation pressure poured out things blew up. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin got impacted by it, even though it wasn't at the heart of that whole thing. And so that's all been negative. Generally, if you look historically at Bitcoin's price action, it does follow global liquidity very closely. And so as liquidity pulls out, you know, Bitcoin's done poorly. It's even done more poorly than I thought because some of the industries were so, you know, like FTX blowing up this spectacularly was not really on most people's radar, for example. Mm. And so that's all done very poorly. If we go look at 2023, I think Instead, what we're going to see is a story about corporate earnings starting to get weaker, right? So some of them might get negative, but other ones might just not grow or might shrink a little bit um, that year. And so that's likely to put ongoing pressure on equities, uh, not necessarily because their earnings multiple is going down anymore, but because their actual earnings are just not doing very well. Um, on the other hand, that gives assets that are not valued for earnings a chance to do better. So things like gold or Bitcoin, where they're more like liquidity plays or anti-dollar plays than earnings plays. And so I do think that you could see, for example, a bottom in Bitcoin before you see a bottom in equities. Um, I do think you could have a better year for gold than you do for stocks, for example. Uh, I think that that's, as a base case, the type of year I'd expect for 2023, unless or until I start to see evidence that, that says otherwise. Right. And traditionally, I know this is probably a tricky question, but how long would a recession tend to last and what can the central banks do to help bring us out of it? Uh, I was chatting to Preston Pish and he was saying that he thinks that the uh, central banks really need to be doing something in Q1, Q2 to release the pressure. So I think it so recessions can last as little as a few months. I mean, technically, the COVID recession in the US was was classified as a recession in hindsight. It was very short. 
Uh, on the other hand, you know, the recession, uh, you know, uh, amid the 2008 crisis was was very long. It lasted well over a year. Um, and so there are different Im- impacts, both in the private sector and from the public sector, that can either shorten or, or lengthen a recession. Usually there's a, a trade-off with that, right? So if you have a recession and you print a ton of money and throw stimulus at it, uh, you can get out of that recession quicker. Um, but then you've done it at the cost of higher debt and then potentially for a, a more inflationary uh, rebound in the future, which then you have to then raise rates super quickly and potentially put yourself into another recession. Um, and so there are levers you can pull, but it's like every lever has like a cost associated with it. And so policymakers are trying to figure out what, what, what combination of levers they want to do. Right now, it seems that I think they're going to be slow to do stimulus. Um, and so I, I think this could be a longer, more grindy type of, of environment that's maybe less deep than people think. So, so a lot of people are afraid of like a 2008 repeat. Um, the reason I'm not, uh, at least not as a base case, is because if you look at 2008, the U.S. banking system was very, very weak. It was very levered. Um, so banks had a very low exposure to safe assets, uh, like you know cash reserves or treasuries, and they had a very high exposure to real estate loans, subprime, auto loans, just all, all types of, of riskier uh, uh, assets that can lose nominal value. Um, and that all imploded pretty severely. In the decade that followed, banks are, if you look at a bank balance sheet, it looks the opposite of how they looked in 2008. So they're actually overexposed historically to treasuries and, and you know, cash, and they're underexposed to loans. Um, and so while they can take a hit, um, I mean, they're not like unscathed if there's a recession. Um, I don't view banks as being like the epicenter of it, at least in the United States. European banks are, on average, uh, not as strong, in my view. Um, but at least in the U.S., you don't have that kind of like a center weakness at the heart of the financial system. Instead, it's dispersed elsewhere. It's it's dispersed in kind of you know any corporation that is marginal and as its debt uh, you know servicing costs going up over time as it has to roll over its debt. And so, if you look at at for example the the recession after the 2000 bubble, um, that I mean, one is that bear market and equities grinded on for quite a while. Uh, you ever you never really actually reached the, especially in inflation adjusted terms, the U.S. stock market never reached its 2000 highs uh, in the next run up. You know, going into say 2007, uh, you kind of only roughly matched the prior highs before then, obviously crashing into the into the Great Recession. It wasn't until the 2010s decade that you actually fully eclipsed the the 2000 highs in equities. Um, and the U.S. The, the recession in the U.S. after the dot com bubble was a pretty shallow one. Um, but it was very bad for asset prices, and the bear market asset prices lasted a while. So I, I think you could get one like that potentially, where you know you have a more stagflationary type of recession. It's not a big you know bank implosion the way that 2008 was, um, but that asset prices you know instead of this like sharp V bottom and then straight up, they just kind of grind for like a while uh, sideways down. You know, maybe a year they go up, but then they don't get to their prior highs for a while. Um, I, I think a lot of sectors are probably going to be like that, where you know we could look back five years from now, and it's like the market's kind of gone nowhere in a in a big choppy trading range for 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 quite a while, at least for things like the S and P five hundred um, and other things that kind of went into this environment expensive, um, and they're now kind of paying the price for how expensive they were. 
And as their earnings are chopping around and as their valuations are chopping around, they don't have that kind of feedback loop that that drove them up to those highs to begin with. Right. Okay. Listen, I've got two more questions for you, Lynn, because I know your time is precious. When we uh, chat at the end of 2023, do you think Bitcoin will be a higher price than it is now or lower? I know that's unfair. I know it's unfair. But we, we just want to test you. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to make one-year predictions with something so volatile. My my expectation would probably be higher, um, but I also would say I would I would also doubt that it'd be all-time highs. No, so my yeah, my expectation would be somewhere between here, yeah, he, like higher than here, lower than it's been. Um, with we'll with the that. caveat that I mean, if yeah, if something severe happens. Uh, and you have some sort of crazy liquidity crisis. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. It could be lower. Um, right. But I, I, my expectation would be somewhere between here and prior highs. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think, you know what? Your overall tone was a lot more, I think, optimistic than I expected. Uh, I was uh, I'm not hugely confident for 2023. I, I took the optimistic parts from this conversation. Okay, just final question. What are you looking forward to in 2023? That's tricky. I think um, I can separate in a macro and Bitcoin, I guess. I guess in macro, I want to see in the first half of the year, I want to see what happens with a lot of these indicators. So a lot of times the way I phrase things is like I'm very confident in how things are going to go for the next six months. And other times you're at more of a like a, a pivot point and like my uncertainty is higher. So for example, earlier this year, I was more like adamant of 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 kind of risk off conditions, and now I'm kind of like, are we gonna are we gonna keep that going into full full on recession, or are we gonna kind of have like a you know kind of a global led rebound? And so my certainty in the next six months is like higher than it was say eight months ago or something like that. Um, and so I would like to see more of a re- resolution in some of that data to to kind of um, point me to a higher confidence position there. Um, I also, I think for Bitcoin, my interest is in probably like uh, infrastructure scaling. So uh, uh, things that Breeze is doing with Lightning, you know, Breeze, Blockstream, mm-hmm. um, making kind of the back end uh, more efficient. Uh, things like Fediment, um, I, I think they're going to be uh, kind of at full gear throughout 2023. Uh, I think ways ways to make the network more private, more scalable. Uh, not just for lighting, but just overall Bitcoin usage. Anything that makes Bitcoin more fungible um, uh, and gives people a, a bigger range of options to use. So they can use the base layer, they can use lightning, they can do something custodial if they want to. There's this whole kind of stack that they can pick whatever uh, serves their need the most. And so for me, it's looking at kind of the classic bear market building situation. And so, for Love. example, um, and I, 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 I'm in a fortunate position because it, I advise Ego Death Capital, and I get to talk to the founders um, that we're looking to invest in or that we have invested in, um, and just kind of see the work that they're building and see what they plan to do and trying to do our best to help that happen. Brilliant. Danny, I can't believe Lynn didn't say she was looking forward to Real Bedford winning the league in 2023. <laughs> That's just a given. Was one of us. Yeah, come on. <laughs> All right, Lynn, brilliant as ever. You're an absolute superstar. Um, it's been a great year working with you and making all these shows. Hopefully, we'll get to hang out again in person. Um, is there anywhere you want to send people to? I'm going to obviously say, if you've not subscribed to Lynn's newsletter, you're an idiot. It's like, well, there is a free version, and even the paid one's only like 200 bucks. It's just, just go and sign up. Stop being an idiot. But is there anything 
else, anywhere else you want to send people to, to look at? Nope, that's it. Check out linon.com. Uh, sign up for at least the free newsletter and then check out premium if you're interested. No. Sign up for the premium one. It's 200 bucks. <laughs> Is it still 200 bucks? Yes. It should be more, but it's only 200 bucks. It's the best 200 bucks you'll spend. Lynn, you're amazing. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Now, normally I say, what did you make of that? But I know you would have loved that because I know you all love Lynn. She's amazing. What a great way to start 2023, reflecting on last year and looking forward to how we think 2023 is going to go. Now, look, it's been a tough 2022, certainly the second half of it. But this is a time we hunker down. This is the time we build. I'm doing the same. I'm just going to be working very hard this year to produce as much great content as I can. I'm out in Nashville. Well, I'm about to head out to Nashville. I'm sat in my car. About to get on the plane to Nashville. I'm going to be making some amazing shows there. I'm also going to be heading out to Austin. I might even have a day in Miami for a couple of shows there. I'm going to record a whole bunch of amazing shows to get us ready in January and February. And I'm just going to give everything I've got this year to give you guys the most amazing content possible and also hopefully get my football team promoted. Now, listen, I wish you all an amazing year. If you've got any questions about this or any other show, you can drop me an email. I will get back to you. Tell her at whatbitcoindid.com.